All right, welcome. Thank you for joining me on this inaugural episode of the Canons of Mass Construction podcast. Uh, my name is Tori Fodder. I'm the manager of the Indigenous Governance Program at the Native Nations Institute at the University of Arizona. I'm also a professor of practice at the James E. Rogers College of Law in the Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy Program. Now, the idea of this podcast has been a few years in the making. Um, a number of students over the years after my course on Native American natural resource law um, expressed some interest, and we kind of kicked around ideas. And one of the ideas I riffed was the title of this podcast, Canons of Mass Construction. And it draws from, of course, the now infamous quest to find weapons of mass destruction in the Iraq War, um, and also the uh, Indian canons of construction that govern treaty interpretation by the United States Supreme Court. A uh, cynic might say that those canons are uh, equally um, as destructive, and to the extent that they're not implemented, perhaps uh, a bit overlooked. Um, suffice to say, there are plenty of areas of Indian law where there's a bit of controversy. Um, so the title is apt, I think, and it's also a bit nerdy and <laughs> complete, completely idiosyncratic and, and quirky, but... Um, I do this mostly to amuse myself, and I suppose that's why any of us do anything. Uh, so, <laughs> to kick things off, what we'll do is, uh, we're in my class, we're slowly walking our way through the Native American Natural Resource Law textbook. It's the fourth edition by Judith Royster. And we're entering the third chapter that deals with land. And so for today's episode, we're going to look at four cases that explore the origins and implications of Aboriginal title, and we'll get to what that includes here in just a bit. And then from there, we'll go to the methods and processes for reestablishing Aboriginal title and perhaps some of the limits that are related to the reestablishment of Aboriginal title uh, from one case in particular. From there, logically, we'll look at... Uh, the extinguishment of Aboriginal title, how Aboriginal title can go away. And then finally looking at, you know, are there any mechanisms for compensation once Aboriginal title has been extinguished? So that kind of gives you an idea of where we're going to go uh, in this episode. And uh, obviously, if you have any questions, um, feel free to reach out. But uh, a, big, a big reason why we're doing this at all is there just aren't that many podcasts devoted to Indian law topics. Uh, and that's too bad in, in a number of ways. But the subject matter and content, I, I think, you know, as a scholar and as someone who's worked in this field for a bit, um, I find the materials absolutely fascinating. If you've got an interest in constitutional law, if you're interested in contracts or property rights, or indigenous people's human rights, or if you're interested in the environment or um, natural resource regulation. All of these ideas and concepts have um, roots within federal Indian law. And so, you know, this is a small effort uh, on my part to uh, you know, bring some of that content to um, the podcast space, and, and hopefully uh, you'll find it interesting as well. Over time, what I hope we can do is actually bring in uh, other scholars and have conversations with attorneys or, you know, some of the students maybe want to participate and share what they're working on in terms of their projects. But hopefully this will be an, an interesting way to engage some folks and uh, get some of these ideas out there for public consumption and consideration. And so with that, let's, let's dive into... The first case uh, from Royster uh, today. And if you've spent any time at all in the federal Indian law universe, this case is going to be <laughs> quite familiar to you. Uh, Johnson v. McIntosh, I, I've also heard it pronounced McIntosh, um, might depend on whether you spent some time up in the Northeast and around New England and Boston, but uh, McIntosh is. <laughs> an old habit in mind, so we'll go with that. But the case itself comes out of 1823, and it was one of the very first cases 
in Indian law, but also one of the very first cases ever decided by the United States Supreme Court. And the three cases that sort of make up the Marshall Trilogy harken back to Justice Marshall in deciding um, Indian law issues and exactly how those sort of fit within the broader framework of, of the United States legal system. And that's been problematic in its day, and it has been ever since in, in many respects, even right up to the case here about a year ago with um, the McGirt opinion in, in Indian law, which is uh, probably one, one of the hallmark and, and now classic cases that has come down from the court, at least in recent years. Um, that said, though, Johnson v. Uh, McIntosh, we got a very simple situation so the, the Indians, uh, as often happens, decide at this point in time uh, to sell land to Johnson back in the 1770s. Uh, there's kind of two parcels in question, but uh, the land sale goes through. Uh, the Indians, by all um, rights, own the land. It was theirs. That was their traditional territories. You know, kind of seeing the writing on the wall is westward expansion and the... Uh, prohibition on um, taking land west of the Appalachians as that fell away from the British government and, and began to ebb under the new um, American government, um, what we would see over time is that sort of bright line prohibition against claiming land west of the Appalachians, it begins to go away. And so the tribes begin to seed land to the United States circa 1795. So again, this is about 20 years after the sale of the land from the Indian tribe to Johnson. So McIntosh decides you know, to be a bit creative, and he's going to go, and he gets his grant of land from the United States government in 1818 for the same lands in question. So we've got Johnson that buys the land 1773, 1775, directly from the Indians. No question that the land was theirs. Fast forward to McIntosh in 1818, buys the same land uh, from the United States government. So the question is, who actually owns the land? Uh, Johnson and McIntosh can both make pretty good arguments, but um, that's why we're in court. It's a very narrow issue, very narrow question. Um, but in answering that question, as so often happens in Indian law, we've got a lot to unpack and, and a whole lot of other things to consider before we can actually get to the uh, final outcome in the case. So as it comes up to the Supreme Court, the, the key issue in the case is whether the title to the Indian lands that were sold by Indians, can that be recognized? You know, do the Indians have the power to sell their own lands to private individuals? And if you're a purchaser of that land, can you receive title that can be recognized by the courts of the United States? And to answer this question, <laughs> Justice Marshall gets a little bit uh, creative in, in many respects. And from here, we, we begin with kind of an ancient maxim that has kind of held uh, sway in a number of um, courts in former Commonwealth countries under the British crown. But it's the idea that discovery gives title to the discoverer. And so here, you know, direct from the case, the principle was that Discovery gave title to the government by whose subjects or by whose authority it was made against all other European governments, which title might be consummated by possession. So in this case, the British asserted title to these lands that were formerly owned by the Indians, certainly occupied by the Indians, and as a result, they asserted a limited degree of sovereignty over them. Uh, and the British government itself had the exclusive right to extinguish title. And the assumption under this doctrine of discovery is that that title, once the United States wins its 
battle for independence, uh, th- those rights passed down to the government of, of the United States. Taking that concept and, and applying it, we walk through the language of the case. And we start with the notion that um, the Indians as conquered inhabitants, they can um, blend with the conquerors or, or they can safely govern as a distinct people. Um, but regardless, not even the conqueror can disregard or um, restrict the Indian. And so as a result, he cannot neglect them without injury to his uh, hazard and to his power. So for the Indian tribes that are within the country and under Marshall's view, uh, the idea is that these Indians are savages, in essence, and that's also direct from the case. And Marshall describes them as savages whose occupation was war and whose subsistence was drawn chiefly from the forest. And so, as a result, you know, we get, we get and this goes into a number of kind of deeper questions about humanity and what does it mean to actually be a person. But in Marshall's view, um, <laughs> there was just something about the Indians that, they, that he couldn't quite put his finger on. And, and he was loath in many respects to actually conclude that Indians could own title. And so citing the Indians' otherness, their savagery, and, and this goes into a whole very interesting discussion that uh, my colleague Rob Williams at the College of Law has in his book, Savage Anxieties, but looking at how the West uh, traditionally and historically has treated indigenous peoples, it's based on this distinction. And he traces the history of savagery um, back to the time of of the Greeks, looking at um, concepts of of otherness uh, vis-a-vis Greek civilization. And it makes for really interesting origins to consider when we look at how that applies to this case in particular. Because Marshall doesn't hide the ball. I mean, he's, he's essentially saying, <laughs> you know, when we think about it, you know, these were people that were conquered, you know, however they might be blended in with, with the conquerors, um, however you know, they might govern in their own capacity in their, what sovereignty they have left. Um, there's no distinction in Marshall's mind that, <laughs> that there's any opportunity for Indians to own title. There's no, there's no kind of outlet. I mean, it's just it doesn't factor into part into his thinking. In part because of the notion of savagery that a learned man like Marshall would have had as the result of a classical education. So he looks at you know and discusses the frequent and bloody wars that have ensued on the on the frontier at this point in time as westward expansion you know, kind of got underway in the late 1700s, early 1800s, um, already there were skirmishes as non-Indian settlers began to encroach upon Indian territories. And so conflict, in many ways, I think he was right, it was unavoidable, um, but not necessarily in the way that he describes. Now, what he goes into is that as the white population advances, the Indians necessarily recede. So for the Indians to be considered occupants, yeah, fair enough, we'll protect them and in, in times of peace they can have possession of their land, but they're deemed to be incapable of transferring absolute title to others. So the conclusion of the case is that the Indians had no recognizable title to actually sell to Johnson. So the very first transaction in the case, 1773, 1775, that sale of land to Johnson is sort of uh, right out of the blocks, no good. Because while Indians may have a right of occupancy, based on the doctrine of discovery, which passes down to the United States, it's the discovering European power that has the right to claim title. And so for whatever indigenous peoples there are, they're so different. 
in Marshall's mind, the concept of title and property doesn't even devolve to these peoples that he openly called savages. And so the outcome then is that, you know, how, however much, you know, they might be civilized now or to the extent to which any of the tribes, you know, take on um, sort of Western ways, it doesn't really matter to Marshall. Um, they simply are incapable of transferring absolute title to others. So the only title we can recognize in this particular case is the title that we get from McIntosh, who goes to the United States government for a land grant and receives one for these exact parcels of land. And so the case itself, um, what it ends up doing is it creates one of the foundational pillars of federal Indian law, and that's the notion of aboriginal title. So aboriginal title under Marshall's construction is nothing more than a right of occupancy. Now, it sounds a bit weaker than it actually is. As we go through um, the remainder of this uh, chapter and look at some of the other cases, what we're going to see over time is that, well, there's, there's some meat to that notion. Um, but for now, um, Marshall's saying that <laughs> they have a right to be there, and that, that may sort of lend itself to certain benefits or certain protections on the part of the government of the United States. But that's not the same as actually having paper title that says in Western law, we own this land. And in fact, all title in the United States, as it does in, under the auspices of the Doctrine of Discovery, uh, as the, the dominant conquering power, um, title is vested in the, in the conqueror. And so the entity that can grant title is actually the government of the United States and not the Indians. And again, just to reinforce the conclusion, Indians had no recognizable title to sell to Johnson in the first place. So that uh, purchase was never, was never perfected. It was never... It was never made good. There's nothing to recognize there because they had no title to sell. And by contrast, McIntosh, who went through the proper procedures of getting a land grant from the government of the United States, his title actually can be recognized. Shifting gears here a bit. Um, so in, in Johnson, we get the notion of Aboriginal title, its origins, where it came from. From, from there, I mean, it's, it's a bit logical, but the, the Royster text moves into a conversation or discussion excerpt of uh, City of Cheryl v. Oneida Indian Nation. That was a case that came down in 2005, authored by Justice Ginsburg. And this, this it's an interesting issue, but what the case got at fundamentally was um, just the question of, how, do, how can tribes go about reestablishing Aboriginal title? So if we uh, you know, assume that um, it, t good title, not Aboriginal title, but paper title is um, for the government of the United States to give, then it follows that um, there have to be some sort of mechanisms or way for tribes if they're to continue to um, engage in economic development or reestablish their land bases. There has to be some way for them to acquire land and reassert Aboriginal title um, through through some sort of process. And that's what we we're getting at here in City of Cheryl. Now it's interesting that actually this case is at, at its core a, a tax case. And yet there are so many other implications for um, this, this particular outcome that go well beyond taxes. And we'll look at a few of those. But uh, in essence, the Oneidas, they had about a 300,000-acre uh, reservation. That reservation, <laughs> believe it or not, gets sold to the state of New York uh, in violation of the Non-Intercourse Act of 1795. So this goes back to... Um, the Marshall opinion. Um, 
it was forbidden as, as a matter of course for settlers to buy land directly from the Indians. Why? Well, what would later become the doctrine of discovery that we find the, the genesis of Aboriginal title in, in the previous case, um, the goal was control and <laughs> controlled expansion, controlled settlement. The, the new federal government of the United States was, was engaged and was actively trying to limit the extent to which people could migrate and settle west of the Appalachians. They wanted it done in an orderly manner. And they wanted to avoid these different skirmishes with, with Indians. They wanted to you know, avoid war and, and bloodshed to the extent they could. And so um, you get this law passed in 1795 that actually forbids non-Indians uh, from selling or purchasing land from the Indians. Nevertheless, we have a violation of that law in 1795 when the Oneidas actually decide we're going to sell portions or significant portions of the reservation to the state of New York. <clears throat> so fast forward to the moment of this, of this present case. The Oneidas decide we're going to begin to reestablish our ancestral territory. And we're, if we have to do that allotment by allotment, piece by piece, parcel by parcel, whatever the case, we're going to go ahead and do it. And so they buy lands that are in the ancestral territory, in fee simple, on the open market. This was not land that the government of the United States had set aside. Um, there was no federal oversight or superintendence. This was land that they set it, that they set out to go ahead and purchase, and they did so in fee simple. And it happens that the land that they bought was within the city of Sherrill. Well. As most things come to a head around tax season, this is what happens to the Oneidas. They ref the nation, the Oneida Indian nation, refuses to pay taxes on the land that it purchased in Oneida County within the city of Sherrill. And the thought is, we bought this land in fee simple. They were once part of the reservation before it was illegally sold in 1795. And so by purchasing this, we are reviving tribal sovereignty piecemeal over each and every parcel that once was ours. And so as a result, we have regulatory authority over this newly purchased property. And Oneida County, you can go pound sin. We're not gonna pay taxes on land in our territory within our nation, however limited our sovereignty might be, our purchase and reacquisition of this land um, results in the restoration or the revival of tribal sovereignty. So it's a bit of a <laughs> The, the case is interesting for a lot of reasons, not, not the least of which is that it's by Justice Ginsburg, who in her time was an absolute champion of um, civil rights in many respects, women's rights. Um, I think it's safe to say she was champion of a number of um, underrepresented uh, peoples. And it might, it, it you could be forgiven for thinking that this, with her pinning the opinion, um, is going to be a slam dunk win for the tribes. But that's not actually what happens here. And, and to add more context, <laughs> Justice Ginsburg goes to college in, in upstate New York at, at Cornell before she began her law career. Um, I don't know the exact distance, but if you look up uh, Cheryl in New York, and I'm just going to pull it up real quick, but it's, it is not, but let's see, I'm just pulling out the map a bit, very close to Lake Oneida, very close to Syracuse, not at all far from Ithaca, New York. I mean, it's, 
looks like maybe a couple of hours. So, I mean, this is the part of the, the state, state where she uh, would have spent significant amounts of time. And so the, the history would not be lost on her. The, um, the small towns and villages in that part of New York um, would not be lost on her. She would have had a real intimate knowledge of the geography and, and the people. And she is the, the author of this opinion. Well, right out the gate, uh, we get the rule in the case, which, which makes an argument based on the actual state of things. And if you consider the actual state of things, we're talking about upstate New York, fairly rural area. <laughs> um, the reservation has long been sold back in 1795, albeit illegally. And what we get is, an arg is Justice Ginsburg's lens um, on this particular issue. And she notes the appropriateness of the relief the Oneida Indian Nation here seeks must be evaluated in light of the long history of the state of sovereign control over the territory. So in other words, you know, in considering this case, you know, we can, we'll hear the claims, we'll weigh the different issues, but we've got to think about the long history of state control over these lands. So <laughs> we're not necessarily going to pay much attention to the tribe's perspective. We've got to, we've got to put it in broader context. We've got to think about all of the non-Indian towns, counties, cities that populate this part of New York. And we've got to weigh those. We've got to balance the equities. We've got to think about what the tribes are wanting and the wrongs that, that befell them. And we've got to think about, you know, how are people actually living now? And in balancing these things, we get our outcome. So applying it to the arguments made, the first issue that comes up that we've got to, that has to be grappled with is the issue of latches. Latches is, is a, uh, an old concept. I, I'll, I'll say ancient, um, not, not to be overly dramatic, but, but it has um, a deep history within the common law system. And here it's the principle that, that after so much time has passed, that can preclude relief. So in other words, yeah, something, something bad may have happened. But after so much time has passed between when the wrong occurred and the time the case is brought or the claim is made, after a period of time, we've got to just wash our hands and say, there's nothing we can do. Here, we consider latches. And in Justice Ginsburg's view, um, it's well established that um, inaction on one party's part, in this case, the Oneidas, and the other's legitimate reliance, i.e. New York and all the towns and counties, that can bar these long dormant claims for equitable relief. The second issue that the court notes is impracticality. So the court has long recognized the impracticability of returning to Indian control, this is right out of the case, that generations earlier passed into numerous private hands. These, quote, these pragmatic concerns about restoring Indian sovereign control over the land magnified exponentially here where development of every type imaginable has been ongoing for more than two centuries. So in other words, <laughs> this is just not doable. If we think about the towns, we think about all the development, my God, Syracuse is, is close by, and so is Ithaca, where I went to college, just down the road. <laughs> if we think about all these different things and all these different towns and, and roads and counties and tax schemes and small businesses, private property, state lands, federal lands, if we consider the whole bulwark of development that's gone on over 200 years, it's just impractical. We can't go there. So it's sort of like latches. Not only is there too much time has passed, even if we erase that and said, no, it's fine. We can hear the claim. 
we still got to think about the practicalities. And this is absolutely a crass nod to the actual state of things. This is a case that is fundamentally decided on the basis of how things are. It doesn't give any thought to right. It doesn't give any thought to the actual claims being made, anything like that. The case is purely decided on the basis of pragmatic concerns. And that's something that Justice Ginsburg notes right, right in the text. And then, you know, we finally we have to think about disruptive effects. Well, were we to do this, what's the outcome going to be? You know, do we have to, you know, mess with settled expectations, which is another uh, calling card of law that we don't like to do. We like to have things settled. We don't like to mess around and, and kind of monkey around with people's property rights. We expect those to be to be settled. When you buy a house, you've got a land description, you've got plots, you've got very clear demarcations for where the property begins and ends. It's it's a whole process to get to get that surveyed and, and assessed. And were we to as a court think about thinking about the case again, if we were to go back and, and allow these Indians to buy up land and it become Indian land, you know, that has the potential disruptive effect of unsettling um, what were formerly settled expectations. And so we've got to, we've got to consider what's actually going on here uh, as time goes by. And so the conclusion, again, this is, this is absolutely surprising, thinking about Justice Ginsburg her philosophical, ideological leanings, um, often so, so often the champion for Indians and other underrepresented groups. Um, here, it's, it's a flat no. And the conclusion is the distance from 1805 to the present day, the Oneida's long delay in seeking, seeking equitable relief against New York or its local units and developments in the city of Sherrill, spanning several generations, evoke the doctrine of latches, acquiescence, and impossibility, and render an equitable piecemeal shift in governance the suit seeks unilaterally to initiate. And elsewhere in the case, she talks about the Oneidas trying to um, revive the long cold embers of sovereignty over, <laughs> over land. It's a bit, bit poetic and a bit silly, but I mean, to, just to be clear, um, for the Oneidas, it's like, well, our goal is to reestablish our land base. Our goal is to reestablish this reservation that we sold, uh, that was sold um, back in 1795. And so we're going to do it by God. We're going to do it piece by piece. And in good faith, that's what they, they attempted to do. Now, to be clear, there are other ways that they could take take their purchase and, and sort of uh, add it to the land base or to the reservation. There's a whole land into trust process that they could request. There, there are other options, but in, in their minds, I'm sure, and you know, any, any reasonable person, I think, would, would assume that, hey, if we buy this, we own it and we control it. Um, here, in this case, in the city of Cheryl, Justice Ginsburg is, is squarely saying no. That's that itself is insufficient. Um, the dissent um, in, in a fairly stinging rebuttal, um, in essence, says that, well, the majority, Justice Ginsburg, you've got it wrong. <laughs> Only Congress has the power to diminish or disestablish a tribe's reservation. And that was that was the key issue in the McGurk case that, that we've, uh, you know, talked about very briefly here in this episode, but you know, we've, we've also looked at it in my course and um, certainly an interesting issue in, in its own. But it's just that simple recognition. Only Congress has the power to diminish the tribe's reservation. And as a core incident of tribal sovereignty, tribes have immunity from state and local taxation. <laughs> so in other words, if we look at the bedrock principles of Indian law, Things that we've developed as as a court, as a body, over you know the course of you know the court's existence, we should see uh, 
actually <laughs> the invocation of these principles, and the outcome should be very different. Um, and that, that makes sense on a number of levels, if you think about it, because the, the crux of the case is based is decided based upon what's expedient. And, and interestingly, the McGurk case could very easily have gone that route, too. And, that, and that's the argument that the state of Oklahoma is currently making, in, in effect arguing that <laughs> this is too hard. We can't give jurisdiction over to these Indian nations, despite how generous, despite how well-organized and efficient they may be. This is, this is our state and territorial integrity by God, so we can't do that. And in essence, Justice Ginsburg is saying the same thing here in the city of Sherrill, that it's just impractical. There's been a, it's been this way for over 200 years. It's not up to us to change it, despite whether or not it's only Congress's job to diminish the reservation, which they did not do in the United case. And the fact that uh, typically uh, Indian country enjoys immunity from, from state taxation. So we don't even get to those considerations in this case, and they're there are interesting points um, raised in earnest, I think, by the by the dissent. But again, you know, just a, maybe a bit of a surprising outcome, um, given Justice Ginsburg's uh, previous uh, track record uh, for uh, underrepresented groups. So again, you know, shifting perspective, how do we how do we get rid of Aboriginal title? And this is the United States on behalf of the Walpi Indians uh, against uh, Santa Fe Pacific Railroad case going back to 1941. Uh, basic facts here are that the United States government sued Santa Fe Pacific, and their goal was to stop them from interfering with the possession and occupancy of the Walpi Indians. Uh, the railroad, by contrast, they're saying, hey, we've got full title to the lands under grants provided for by statute in 1866. The law said the railroad rights are subject to an Indian right of occupancy. And so it, it, to further complicate things, the law also said that the United States shall extinguish Indian title only by their voluntary session. So you got a railroad company. They're trying to interfere with the right of occupancy that these Indians have, their Aboriginal title rights. And they're saying, under the land grant that you gave us, United States, under a statute in 1866, we can, we can do that. We have full title. This is ours. One of the benefits of, of good title is the right to exclude. So the Indians need to get the hell off our land. This is, this is ours. But for the caveat that makes it a bit muddy, which is that the rights um, were subject to the Indian right of occupancy, so we've got to figure out what in the world that means, and the fact that the law also said that the United States would extinguish Indian title or Aboriginal title only by voluntary session. So the question in the case is whether these lands that are owned by the railroad um, whether they were the ancestral homelands of the Walpi, that their occupancy amounted to Indian title within the meaning of that 1866 legislation that um, granted title uh, to the railroad. And as a result, in, in the 1866 Act, um, whether or not they actually, the government, the United States government, actually extinguished Aboriginal title um, by granting the railroad um, title um, subject to the right of occupancy. So that's a bit, I mean, we'll unpack it a bit, but in essence, it's what, what did the government actually do? And that's what we come back to in all of these cases is, you know, what, what is it that Uncle Sam's trying to, trying to get done? So we got, we got a railroad. It's 1940s. We're talking about um, 
a land grant or, or grant of title um, dating back to 1866. Think about the historic context. We're kind of um, this is testing my own historical knowledge, but I mean we're we're coming out of the Civil War era, and we're moving into sort of supercharged westward expansion. We've got the entire West, and we've got to get there somehow. And the efficient mode of transport at the time is railroad. So Santa Fe Pacific, I mean, they're they're a big, a major corporate player in all of this. They've undertaken much of the settlement of the West and made it possible for people to go and leave the East Coast from the cities and, and carry on westward um, to some of these remote and, and exotic, at the time, locales. And so... <laughs> There's there's a bit of, of duplicity when, when this original uh, bit of legislation is struck back in 1866. And the question is about occupancy. Um, were these lands that are owned by the railroad actually the ancestral home of the Wallapai? And as a result, did the United States government agree to extinguish it? And in the event that they didn't extinguish it, um, did they in fact did the government in fact grant to the railroad company kind of an easement? You get this land subject to the right of occupancy of the Indians. And so <clears throat> that's what we've got to um, unpack. That's what we've got to kind of sort through and, and figure out uh, here in this case. And here's, here's how the court breaks down the, the kind of bigger, bigger question. <clears throat> Occupancy is necessary in the court's view to corroborate Aboriginal title. And this is, it's a question of fact that you figure out just like any other. So taking a fact-based approach... Um, You've got to establish whether or not the lands in question were included in the ancestral home of these Indians, the Wallapai. Um, was it a definable territory? Was it something that the Wallapai exclusively used and occupied? You know, is this, is this where they lived? <clears throat> and if they did, then the Wallapai had Aboriginal or Indian title, as it's used here in the case. They had the right to be there, and that Indian title survives unless it was um, unless it, unless extinguished. It survives the railroad grant in 1866. So again, thinking about the previous case, it's it's for Congress to definitively extinguish Aboriginal title. That's that's kind of the framework that we're looking at here in in this case with Santa Fe Pacific. <clears throat> If the right of occupancy of the Wallapai was not extinguished prior to the final location of the railroad in 1872, then um, Santa Fe Pacific would have, and its its predecessor would have taken um, the lands in fee subject to the encumbrance of Indian title. So again, it would be a bit like an easement. Yeah, you can build the railroad through here, but the Indians are going to be here too. And of course, what Santa Fe Pacific was arguing is that no, get get the hell off our land. So the key takeaway from the case is really this, that the extinguishment of Indian title based on Aboriginal possession <clears throat> is, of course, something different. The power of Congress in regards to this is supreme. The manner, method, and time of such extinguishment raise political, non-justiciable issues. So, if we're talking about Aboriginal title and there's a clear intent on the part of Congress to abolish it, get rid of it, extinguish it, that's something completely different. That is within Congress's plenary power. Again, federal Indian law buzzwords, but you know, for those listening that may not have this kind of background, 
All that means is that with respect to Indian law and Indian issues, Congress reigns supreme. And there's very little room for the courts to second guess or uh, adjudicate decisions made by Congress with respect to the Indians. And so that's that's our general framework that we're operating in. <clears throat> so looking at the facts, again, this is a fact-based inquiry. Before 1865, there was clearly no extinguishment. The act of March 3rd, 1865, was merely an offer to the Indians from the Indian superintendent, Mr. Poston, and they received no agreement from the Wallapai to extinguish their right of occupancy. So from this, there, there was clearly no congressional action to extinguish Indian title. Fast forward to 1874, <clears throat> removal. Here the question becomes, was the administrative, the Indian department, <laughs> was that action tantamount to extinguishment? And the answer is no. That was an administrative, and I, I kind of gave it away, but it was the it was the administrative decision of this Indian Affairs Department to re remove the Wallapai. It wasn't Congress's decision. <clears throat> so again, we get into this awkward tension in Indian law, where normally we would have checks and balances, and it would be kind of an anthema for the executive to take action where Congress has not legislated or given them authority to do so here at this point in time, all is well. Carry, keep calm, carry on. Um, there, there's, no, there's no sort of dispute about the ability of the, the administration or the executive branch uh, to undertake those kind of measures. So, but it's neither here nor there in the eyes of the court because the, the conclusion or the outcome or the, on this point is <laughs> whatever whatever the action was, there was no congressional sanction for removal. And in fact, the Indian Department itself allowed the Wallapai to come back onto those lands about a year later. So there's no congressional mandate. Even if there's forced abandonment, which was temporary, that is not tantamount to voluntary session. <clears throat> And then finally, the last bit of fact to consider is the executive order, uh, July 8, 1881. Again, this is getting a bit in the weeds of the history, but it was one of the issues considered in the case. Um, the reservation in 1881 gets established at the Wallapai's request. So the Wallapai accepted it, and this amounted to a relinquishment of any tribal claims outside of it. In other words, voluntary session. And that falls under the 1866 Act um, that we've kind of discussed at length above. So the Wallapai accepted it. This amounted to a relinquishment um, of any tribal claims outside of it. And so as a result of that, <laughs> not the removal, not the 1866 Act, itself, but the voluntary acceptance and request of a reservation, that was the magic word for the court that triggered voluntary session under the 1866 Act. So if you remember that, that bit of legislation that gave Santa Fe Pacific rights, the law said there can the railroad, you can have it, subject to the Indian right of occupancy, and the U.S. will extinguish Indian title. So in other words, you've got an easement that you're stuck with, and it's these Indians, <laughs> unless the Indians engage in the process of voluntary session, unless they give up their land. <laughs> so we're fine through 1865. The 1865 Act, we've got administrative actions, but no congressional action that, that corroborates session 
even the removal, we've got the Indian Department kind of going rogue, taking their own actions. They allow them to come back. Forced abandonment is not voluntary cession, but when the Indians request a reservation in 1881, that was sufficient for the court to find voluntary cession, triggering the provisions of Section 2 under the 1866 Act. And so here, the Indians lose. And it's, it's kind of, it's interesting, but it also, I think, <laughs> imparts some of the complexities of Indian law because <laughs> you can be good, you can be good, you can, it's like, um, maybe, 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 then no. <laughs> so it's, it's disappointing, a disappointing outcome, but, you know, in, in many ways, this is specific to this tribe and, and the quirks of history. But it also, you know, lets you know that courts aren't necessarily concerned about equitable considerations. They're not necessarily concerned with um, sort of history. And here we don't really, I mean, I suppose there's no treaty, so we wouldn't necessarily trigger the canons of construction. But um, at, at any rate, the outcome is that the, the tribe uh, loses. So when the when the tribe does lose, I mean, t- typically with with uh, loss of title or loss of land or any property rights, um, we can we can consider that a taking, and takings are compensable, <laughs> at least you know in theory. Um, here in the next case, uh, Tihatan. Uh, versus the U.S. case out in 1955, um, we're looking at compensation for the extinguishment, the doing away with of Aboriginal title. And here we've got uh, the Court of Claims, these Alaska natives, Tihatans, um, they have Aboriginal title, but there's no congressional recognition of Indian rights. Fast forward to 1947, the Secretary of Agriculture authorizes to contract uh, to sell timber, um, notwithstanding whatever claims uh, uh, or of possessory rights that these particular Indians might have. So in other words, for the Secretary of Ag, go for it. (laughs) Go ahead. We're going to go ahead and do a contract. We're going to open up some of this timber for sale um, and yeah we're not we're not going to worry about Aboriginal title well in 51 the agricultural agriculture secretary once again uh, gins up a contract for the sale of timber with the private company and the Indians come back and say hey this is a compensable taking this is our land we have a right of occupancy we have Aboriginal Indian title original Indian title. Um, and here you are, government, coming in, okaying the contract for this private company to come in and, and take our timber. And and to the Indians, it, it goes a bit beyond that. We have, quote, full proprietary ownership. <laughs> um, and they define this as the um, right to possess, to occupy, and, and to use the, the resources of the land, i.e. the timber. Uh, And both, if you're allowing this timber company to come in, you're taking our land, uh, you're sort of voiding our ability to occupy it, and and certainly, by gosh, you're you're (laughs) taking away our ability to use it because you're cutting the trees down and and shipping them out. And and the government comes back and says, well, no, these Indians, they they have no compensable interest. So I mean, it's a pretty it's a pretty clear cut case. I mean, it's I think the issues are straightforward, and and the question is whether you know the tribe is owed compensation from the United States for the taking of timber. <clears throat> and again, you know, the Indians are claiming Aboriginal title or, or right of occupancy. The court. Um, situates the, the outcome with, within, within the halls of Congress. So where Congress has by treaty or agreement or something else declared that 
the Indians were to hold the lands permanently, then compensation must be paid for subsequent taking. So, I mean, in, in this, I think we get into one of the complexities of the issue, which is that, okay, Indian tribe, <laughs> you have a right of occupancy because we over here in Washington, D.C., in, in the Congress, we have deemed it so. We recognize your right of occupancy or your right of Aboriginal title. <laughs> if, in fact, Congress has done that, then... If those lands get taken or something like this happens where the resources are exploited despite um, no sanction from Congress, then the Indians are entitled to compensation for, for a taking. In the event that does not happen, there is no, there is no entitlement. There's no, there's no, nothing gets triggered that would, that would, um, mandate compensation for a taking. So applying that basic rule, that, that basic idea about congressional recognition, we look at that same issue here in this case. Was there recognition? And the answer is no. There was no congressional recognition of Indian occupancy. Uh, any, any legislation to that effect was just to maintain the status quo. There was nothing in the legislation that allowed for <clears throat> these companies to come in. There, there was nothing, there was no affirmative action by Congress, in other words, um, to actually um, grant a right of occupancy to the Tihitans. <clears throat> and with respect to Aboriginal title, the court looks at the issue and says, well, the right of occupancy itself is not a property right. <laughs> now wrap wrap your head around that one. You know, let's just pause for a second and think about that. The right of occupancy is not a property right. Well, what the hell is it? <laughs> that's that's kind of the whole the whole thing we're trying to, to sort out. And and we go back to to Johnson v. McIntosh, where you know Justice Marshall kind of steps in it and <laughs> it, it sets off a, a whole chain of events that makes Indian property law and Indian property rights so confusing. But to the court, it is a right of occupancy is not a property right because you don't actually own the land. You just have a right to be there. So you're kind of a barnacle in that sense. You can sort of latch on and, and be in and around it, but you don't own the land. If someone wants to come and bulldoze your sacred forest and put up a parking lot for the next Walmart, that can be done. And, and that's what the court's getting at here. After conquest, after Indians were, were defeated peoples or conquered peoples, they were allowed to occupy parts of their old territory. But this is not a property right. It's just a right of occupancy. They have a right to be there. And so again, hearkening back to Aboriginal um, title and the doctrine of discovery, the right of occupancy is given at the sufferance of the sovereign. In this case, the United States. The United States grants and protects that right of occupancy, their ability to be there uh, from intrusion by third parties. The right of occupancy itself is, is very tenuous. It can be terminated. Um, if, the, if the sovereign chooses to dispose of lands by sale or you know, whatever it wants, there's no legally enforceable obligation to compensate the Indians for the extinguishment of their right of occupancy. So in this case, <laughs> the outcome is not good for, for the Tihatans. And, and the court notes, you know, we've never had any case that's come before us um, with respect to Indian occupancy. Um, that it's not uh, put put it differently. There in in up to this point, no no case had come before the court on Indian occupancy, um, where it was not specifically recognized as ownership 
uh, by an action authorized by Congress. So in other words, if <laughs> if you look at the history of the case law leading into this into this particular case, nowhere in that history was there ever a time where an Indian right of occupancy was anything other than sort of a right to be there at the sufferance of the government of the United States. And if the government of the United States chooses to withdraw its, its the privilege extended to Indians to be on their own land, then they can do so without compensation. And leading into this, we get this, this infamous quote um, from the Supreme Court. And uh, it reads, Every American schoolboy knows that the savage tribes of this continent were deprived of their ancestral ranges by force, and that even when the Indians ceded millions of acres by treaty in return for blankets, food, and trinkets, it was not a sale, but the conqueror's will that deprived them of their land. <clears throat> that, that quote adequately sums up, I think, a lot of the Supreme Court's approach to federal Indian law. And it's from various justices at various moments in history, but, but the outcome is always the same. It's, it's the notion that, <laughs> yeah, okay, we, we gave you some blankets and food and, and some trinkets in exchange for your land, but that wasn't a real sale. <laughs> that was just to make you feel good. And we're going to go ahead and take this land anyway, but here's some, here's some beads. So it's, it's fair to say, I mean, I think cases like this are, are uh, quite rightly in, infuriating. And the question is, you know, did they really have no property rights? <clears throat> it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question and, and maybe something to take away and think about as we kind of close out this uh, first episode of the podcast, but, you know, just to think about <laughs> what other people group in the United States has such contentious issues with, with property? And what, what is it about Indians and Indian law in particular that makes these, these issues so, um, so thorny, so, so, so complicated? Well, a lot of it goes back, I think, to Justice Marshall in, in the case that you know, we began this conversation about um, with respect to Johnson v. McIntosh. The whole problem there is, is the way that it was handled. Um, certain scholars have made the argument that, that, that the taking of Indian land was the most efficient way of, of uh, sort of shuffling the Indians off this mortal coil and <laughs> carrying on to... Um, actually take the land, take over the continent. It was, it was the way of, of kind of invoking the least amount of bloodshed and, and relocation and whatnot were, were to some extent inevitable. I don't agree with that view because I think it's highly problematic and it really depends on how you define efficiency. But here what we're talking about is really the whole, the whole question about property rights. I mean, the, the nation itself was founded on the premise and on the principle that, that people could come here, that this was a land of opportunity, and that uh, settlement and property rights, these are things that are, are sacred. And, and to Justice, uh, the late Justice Ginsburg's point, um, <laughs> we don't like to upset settled expectations. And yet what we've done in, in property law um, in many ways with respect to indigenous peoples is we've, we've certainly upset what normally is the status quo. Um, there's, there's a saying among, among lawyers and law students, law professors, that <laughs> occupation is nine-tenths of the law. Fair enough, but that's not true in Indian law. And that certainly wasn't true uh, for the Tiatons. And then another thing I'll, I'll leave you to, to kind of think about and consider is this um, whole conversation at the end about what every American schoolboy knows. That's in some ways that's a spin on you know, the Ginsburg opinion, but it's a reflection of the actual state of things. You know, it's not about 
equity. It's not about what actually is right. It's not about what, what, what's going to right the scales of justice rather than, than creating a perpetual imbalance. The outcome here is about the actual state of things and how do we maintain the status quo with the least disruption? Because however virtuous or however truthful or actual the wrong was that the Indians incurred, too much time has passed and there ain't nothing we can do about it is, is more or less the perspective. And the question, I think, for scholars and, and ethicists, etc., is, you know, to what, to what extent um, do we pervert justice still today on the basis of law that has no moorings in our values? And that's something else to consider, just to, just to think about as we kind of close here. So... Um, with that, we will conclude the first episode of the Canons and Mass Construction podcast. Hopefully we'll get some guests and other perspectives. Um, if you have comments, uh, feel free to email me. My email address for those uh, listening that aren't affiliated with the University of Arizona or my class, uh, you can reach out to me. It's the letters, excuse me, the letters TAF05. T-A-F, as in Frank, 05, at Arizona.edu. I'd be glad to take your questions. If anyone submits anything, I will uh, try to work it into the next episode, and we'll uh, carry on with this, uh, I think, interesting conversation about Native American natural resources. And so with that, I will take my leave, and I hope uh, wherever you are, you have a great day. Bye.